Good evening, everyone. Can everyone hear me okay? Um, it's great to have you all here for, for Michael's uh, biography, um, along with Daniel Han. Uh, Daniel is a translator. Uh, we have many translators in here. We have an office in here that translates Eastern European books, Istros books, and they were very excited that we had Daniel in here to, uh, to interview Michael for his uh, autobiography. Um, I think Michael doesn't really need much of an introduction because you all probably know who he is. Um, we will be uh, having, well, I think the format is we'll, I'll, I'll ramble on for a bit and introduce these guys. They, they will ramble to each other and then afterwards there'll be uh, book sales at the back and um, Michael will be signing books. So have a great evening and thanks for coming on to Conway Hall for this event. Thank you. Thanks, Sid. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, a very warm welcome to Conway Hall. This place is important to you, by the way. I was about to introduce you, but, but first, th this place is special yes. for you, well, right? Well, I have, I have been here um, many times. Yeah, I, I can remember it with um, sort of banners sort of out, coming out off the balcony like that. I think since I was a kid, I'm pretty sure I was brought here for the odd meeting or two as a kid, and then many, many since, and I was just remembering the uh, Mordecai Venunu uh, meetings here with Susanna York being impassioned from the, the podium there. Yes, no, I've been here uh, more times than I can count. Yes, mm. so it's very nice. Yes, Good. thank Perfect you. Perfect place. Well, it's lovely to have you here. Um, Michael, as you know, as Sid said, we don't need to introduce much because you will have figured him out by now. Um, <laughs> and if you, and if I should say, if you haven't, you should read this because one of the things that's really interesting about the memoir is it's very revealing about how we ended up, how the world ended up with this particular Michael Rosen. In, in the form you've taken, in fact. Oh, good. Um, Michael is, of course, a children's writer, he's a broadcaster, he's a professor of children's literature. Um, he is many things, but he is here today as uh, the writer of a memoir, first volume of a memoir, um, called So They Call You Pisha, which is a memoir, but it's very much about uh, his parents, among other things. It's about politics, it's about... Uh, I have a list of, like, 97 things I want to talk about in this event. Um, I'm going to start by asking you about your parents, Michael, because they, they loom, uh, obviously loom very large in this book. Um, Harold and Connie, tell me how they met. Let's start with Harold that. and Connie, how did they meet? Yes, uh, they met when they were 16 in uh, the Young Communist League. Um, the Communist Party was very active in the East End of London. Uh, my mum lived just off the Roman Road um, on a road called Globe Road that some of you may know. And my dad lived in Nelson Street, which is behind the uh, London Hospital. Um, my father always thought that it was uh, incredibly dangerous going from Nelson Street to Globe Road because you left the ghetto, as he put it. <laughs> um, and so you can actually do the walk. I've done it just to sort of find out how my parents courted. Um, and you have to walk up what's called Cambridge Heath Road, uh, which you may know, and then you get to... Uh, that crossroads where Roman Road goes and then he would have had to have turned right and left it, assuming that was the way he, he went that way rather than her. <laughs> and um, they, yes, they met in the Young Communist League. Um, revolutionary activity going on at the time was table tennis. Um, and um, according to my mother, who had spent many a night, uh, she said, uh, lying awake wondering where she would ever find a husband. I'm not quite sure why my beautiful mother thought that. Um, people from many years afterwards told me how beautiful my mother was, and she was a Shana Madel um, in Yiddish, and that uh, she didn't seem to have any problems in people thinking that. But anyway, as a teenager, she sat there thinking, where will I find a husband? She was at a girls' school at the time, Central Foundation School for Girls in Spittle Square, so maybe there weren't many chaps around there. 
Uh, and my dad, it didn't seem to bother him whether he was going to find a wife or not, um, but my mother uh, said that he had beautiful auburn hair. By the time I knew him, he didn't, but anyway, um, he had beautiful auburn hair, and then the moment I saw him on the other side of the room, she said, I knew that was the one for me, and he didn't stand a chance. <laughs> that was the way she put it, so I'm not sure whether that comes under the heading of harassment, but um, <laughs> she certainly made up her mind, and... Um, so on the serious business of the Young Communist League and what they were up to, uh, they were leafleting the tenements. Um, there were two major things going on, the Spanish Civil War, um, which my parents were quite active in, in organizing support for, and also they were literally fighting, uh, for, not exactly for their lives, I don't want to exaggerate that, but certainly fighting for, um, to stop themselves being persecuted and hurt uh, by fascists on street corners where they were. The fascists had their little favorite spots. Uh, the communists used to uh, speak in the streets, uh, particularly on the corner of Valence Road and the Mile End, uh, uh, not Mile End, Whitechapel Road. Um, and there were street fights. And also, if you were on your own, there was a good chance that uh, the fascists would rough you up. So this culminated in 1936 with uh, what is known now as the Battle of Cable Street when Oswald Mosley tried to bring his British Union of Fascists marching through a largely Jewish area of the East End. Uh, that was his plan. Um, it, ostensibly nothing to do with intimidating Jews. Why he thought a bunch of uniformed thugs who had regularly talked about why the Jews were awful and terrible um, why it was perfectly okay for him to march down Cable Street, uh, he never explained. Um, and uh, the response by uh, the East End was to put up barricades in order to prevent him from marching. He never got any further than Mansell Street by the Tower of London, but the police spent all day trying to barge a passage through. So in fact, the, the Battle of Cable Street was a fight between East Enders and the police, not with Mosley. And my parents, it was probably their first date, actually. Um, and um, there was a sort of strange joke that they used to tell that as a kid I didn't understand, mostly because I didn't know what a barricade was. If you ever look at any of the photographs and films, you'll see that people did barricade Cable Street. They bunged up, they chucked out wardrobes, overturned vans, um, just put anything to barricade the streets uh, to prevent, as it happens, the police from barging a way through. And my mum and dad used to tell the story, and you'll never guess what, Mick, we were on the wrong side of the barricades. <laughs> and I'd sit there going, why is that funny? What's funny about being on the wrong side? No, I didn't get the joke. And so they would tell this joke quite often, and I didn't understand it. And, um, and then it appeared that uh, they were down one of the little side streets off Cable Street. Most of them had gone from the bomb because of the bombing. Um, Cable Street itself is quite a few bits of it are totally intact. Um, and... Um, uh, they were literally on the wrong side of the barricade. They looked round and one of these uh, Mountie cops were coming for them. And the mounted cops, as was explained to my parents later, um, the weapon of choice of the mounted cops were the Indian, well, a bit like the Americans call a nightstick instead of a baton, the long sticks that they had, uh, which they'd practiced on Indians in India to prevent them having independence. Um, you know, the British work these things out quite well. And um, so they were heading for my parents like that when somebody opened a door on one of the little terraces and pulled my parents into it. So my dad's way of telling this story at Cable Street commemorations was a sort of distinctly downbeat way of telling the story. So I've been at various commemorations for Cable Street and people saying, you know, 
we mounted the barricades, you know, it was glorious. And then my dad would come out and say, yeah, and we were on the wrong side, you know, and, and we ended up inside someone's house. But anyway, um, so, uh, yes, my parents met there. Um, and um, so that's sort of 1935, 1936. They were born in 1919, within two or three weeks of each other. Right. That, this could be the in easiest interview I've ever done. Oh, right, good. I'll do my best. Great. Um, I be by the time you were born, we, we, we've moved mostly from East London to North London. Um, the politics are still there, the activism is still there. How much did you understand of, the, of, of what they were doing when you were very young? How much did you understand of the activism, of the demonstrations, of the Communist Party? How, how much sense did that make to you? Um, so from, yes, naught to 11, I was a communist. Well, not strictly speaking me, but um, my parents were. And uh, those of you in the room who've either been in the Communist Party or perhaps still in one of them, I noticed uh, one branch were meeting in the other room over there. So um, there is something going on. And um, uh, yes, as a child, it, uh, maybe people who've belonged to churches and things, it's, it's quite similar because it's sort of like a kind of pageantry. You're, you're not quite sure what it was. So when I think back on it, I can remember going to what we used to call St. Pancras Town Hall, now Camden Town Hall, and I'm at the back, and my, I can see my father is kind of quite excited, and then there's this man shouting incredibly loudly and incomprehensibly, and it was Harry Pollitt, um, General Secretary of the Communist Party at that time, and my dad's nodding. He's doing revolutionary nodding. <laughs> like that, and I'm thinking, why, why, why are we, and I was about four or five, you know? And then also, as a com communism was good, Right, so of course as a kid you've got a notion of good and bad, you know, there's like school, you can be good and bad, and then there's communism is good, and then there are bad things like uh, the Queen um, and, so the, so the and fascists. So the, the, the family butcher was good. Yes, that's right, so indeed, so under good comes Marmite, mm -hmm. so is Marmite communist? Probably. The butcher was very, very good, and in fact so good that I remember my mum recommending it to another Jewish communist, so surely he was a communist, possibly a Jewish communist, and I thought he was until I found out from the butcher's son, who I used to play football with, that his dad had said that we should drop a bomb on Russia. And so I reckon probably they weren't communists. <laughs> I kind of figured some of these things out, yeah. you see, so there's quite a lot of reflect, reflecting going on. Um, and then there was camping. Now, not many people realize, but Das Kapital, uh, in Das Kapital, Marx recommends that people go Camping. I don't, I don't know whether you found that bit in Das Kapital, but it's there somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, especially to places where you get wet. <laughs> North York Moors, Welsh borders. There's mm. a thing about, I'm sure there's a bit in Das Kapital about Marxists go camping on the Welsh borders to get wet. And uh, we went camping with other Marxists and communists. There was a kind of communist Narnia. <laughs> yeah, so that there was like groups of us. Um, and we'd run around talking every now and then and go, Russia, yeah, hooray, and then go and milk a cow, and things like that, that's, that's what we do, um, and then swim in the river, because this was on the Welsh borders. Um, I was very keen on milking cows at the time, I thought that was, that was very, I didn't think that was communist though, milking cows, because I knew the farmer wasn't a communist, because he told me he wasn't. No, he said, I'm not a communist, which I, I kind of figured that one, yeah. Good tip, yeah. But um, yeah, it's very, very difficult, but um, sort of by the time I'm 11, it is beginning to take shape, but mm. we'll come to that, I'm sure, yeah. So, so 
you mentioned Russia. So Russia is the is, is the, the it's utopia. Good. Russia yeah, utopia. it's all happening. It's it's going to be good there. It's it's getting on the way to being good. It's nearly good. It's nearly it's nearly there. And also China is good as well mm -hmm. at that time. And also um, the whole of the Warsaw Pact. I don't, I'm not sure I knew that phrase, but uh, sometimes these were known. Believe it or not, some people in the room will know peace-loving countries. They were sometimes called uh, the peace-loving countries. Um, and so the, all the peace-loving countries were good. Yeah. Right. And what's, can you say something about the connection between, between the Jewishness and the communism? There's something about, you, you, you made the connection with the anti-Semitism and, and, and Mosley, but there's something about wanting to be protected from this, this, the threat of kind of rising anti-Semitism. Is that one of the things that led your parents into the party? Is that one of the, 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 that kind of connection? Because it happened, I mean, a lot of, a lot of Jews after the war, particularly, particularly in, the, in the, the late 40s, a lot of Jews moved left. That happened a lot. Yeah. So this is, we have to be a bit careful here that we don't just sort of have a heading called the Jews, the Jews of the world, as if it's all one united group of people. So we're talking here specifically about Eastern European Jews, who most of whom are of Ashkenazi, so-called Ashkenazi origin. So they're Yiddish-speaking um, and working in what people used to call low trades. Um, <laughs> quite often the clothes business schmutters, um, but not entirely so. So I'm talking about Eastern European Jews, not German Jews. Yeah. So these are Ashkenazi Jews living in Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary. And a, a, a large proportion of the East End Jews were of that background. Why were they there? because it's always very interesting to ask this question about any migrant group anywhere in the world. How did you get there? Why did you get there? And in the case of the Ashkenazi in the East End, the, the main reason was because of the persecutions in Russia and Poland uh, by the Tsars and the Tsarist forces from the 1860s onwards that the Jews were quite handy for kicking at various times. Uh, these were despotic regimes that had various sort of relationships with Jews um, and sometimes it totally excluded from all kinds of trades and of course it always serves despotic powers to divide and rule in various ways and so um, long traditions of anti-Semitism and people just ran away from it. You can see it even in Fiddler on the Roof, the, um, the figure uh, played by Paul Michael Glazer. He's saying we've got to go, we've got to get out but also the Paul Michael Glazer figure is talking about universals because the debates that went on back in the 1880s and 1890s, it all sounds terribly obscure, but these were debates between separatism or universalism, between whether there's some solution as Jews to liberate ourselves or whether we must, in order to be liberated, there's no such thing as liberation for your clan, there has to be liberation for everybody. So this is, if you like, one of the birth points of socialism and communism from a Jewish perspective. But of course, there are many others that come from organized labor, uh, mine workers, steel workers, uh, the suffragette movement, and so on. So in the case of the Jews, it came partly out of this persecution, partly out of the kinds of self-defense that Jews worked out, notably with an organization called the Bund, Jewish Workers' League in Poland. It was founded in Vilna over 110 years ago. Um, and so coming into the East End are people with those views. So when I look at my family, there's my mother's father and my uh, father's uh, grandfather and mother carrying those views, if you like, as migrants into the East End and then applying them here and saying, well, what organization works here? And some look to the Labour Party and some look to the Communist Party, some look to the Independent Labour Party, the ILP, remember, was quite strong. Uh, 
So that's sort of there. Now, well, so when you say, well, did they join because they were Jews? Were they, what were, what were they? Then in some respects, absolutely because it's a product of their response to the persecutions and then a, prod then a response to that by finding a universalistic solutions. Um, and in my parents' case, and this sort of becomes slightly kind of tragicomical, is that they somehow thought that they therefore had to drop Judaism, not that they were either of them particularly observant families, their families, but also to drop all their relatives. So there's a kind of strange thing in my family of a sort of huge hinterland of relatives who were kind of referred to as sort of strange others that my father would kind of roll off all his mother's sisters and say, oh, well, there was Adi and there was Sally and there was Lally and there was Helen and there was Millie and there was Hilda. And I go, well, where are they now? I say, oh, I don't know. <laughs> in fact, that is the gesture. It just came to me there, oh, I don't know. And I, I mean, and then my mother, I'd say, well, wh wh where did Zayda come from? Oh, I don't know, she'd say. That's Jewish, a Yiddish for grandfather. And I'd say, well, what about where was Bubba born? Oh, I don't know. And they were sort of either willfully uncurious or sort of genuinely kind of, that's it. We've done that bit. That's what all that belonged to. And I, just one little episode I've put in the book was that uh, my dad and I were walking through John Lewis, so now we've on bourgeoisified, you see, so we're in John Lewis. <laughs> And uh, we're walking through John Lewis, I'm about 17, and there's my dad, and uh, we walk past a woman, and just as we get past her, she says, Harold! And my dad turned around, and I turned around, and then this woman came up to Harold and said, how are you, Harold? That's my dad, by the way. And um, my old man goes, oh yeah, no, we're fine, and they have a little sort of, and I can just, I could always sense when my dad was a little bit tense, because he'd, he'd sort of do this sort of thing with his neck like this, you see, and so he's going, yeah, no, it's all right, yeah, yeah, we're okay, and then off she went, and I said, well, who was that, and he said, oh, that's Auntie Ray, that's my mother's sister, and it's the first time I've seen her, right, and I said, oh, really, and I said, what, that voice, so he said, oh, yeah, yeah, she was a labor counselor, frightful woman, <laughs> I said, what, a labor counselor in the family, where, oh, West Ham or somewhere, East Ham, West Ham, I don't know, I don't know where, she married a bloke called John Collins, I think. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. Anyway, I said, well, why don't we ever see her? Oh, God, no, she was awful. And part of it was the personal politics of the fact, which we've left out, is that my father's mum and dad split in America. Okay, they were in America. My dad was American. He was born in America. They split over something really important, massive, something like the fact that his mother was in the Communist Party and his father was in the Socialist Party, you see? So, you know, people split for all sorts of reasons. Do, but do, so, you know, obviously, you know, you can't live together, can you? You know, one lot supporting Debs, the other lot supporting some other lot, you know, impossible. So mum, his mum came back from America with three kids. Um, and so this whole hinterland, there's this whole hinterland of America. There's all his father's relations who are in America, France, and Poland, and uh, his mother's relations as well. And there was just this sort of great sort of mysterious, what's the word, conumbra, is it? What's that thing around the sun? Is that a conumbra? Penumbra, that's it, that's the one, not a conumbra, that's something, anyway. It's a great sort of penumbra of relatives around the pair of them that we kind of didn't know about. So, but, but they, they'd found a different tribe. They, they, they had one tribe and they, and they left that tribe too. Definitely, and, and indeed, um, though they didn't necessarily gravitate towards them, there, there were these beings that Hitler had identified as Jewish communists. Um, not many of them in Pinner, I have to say. Um, 
where they center of the struggle for global difficult yeah. difficult and also branch meetings were quite interesting because they took place in our house um, my parents would say on a Tuesday night they would say uh, it's um, branch meeting tonight boys off to bed and so we would pretend to go to bed go halfway up the stairs and then lean over the banister to see who was coming to the branch meeting and sometimes one or two people did turn up which is amazing, really, when and you when, think about and, it. And when nobody showed up at all? And when nobody showed up at all, then the branch meeting, they just, never mind, they just still went into the front room and had the branch meeting with the pair of them. And I have often wondered how that went. I mean, how does a, you know, a husband and wife Communist Party branch meeting circa 1953 go on? And I, I, all I can think was that one of them would turn to the other and say, who's chairing the meeting? Uh, I will, no, I think I will. I will. Shall we put it to the vote? Uh, no, that'll be tricky. Um, who's taking the minutes? Well, minutes of the last meeting. Yes, yeah, minutes of the last meeting. Matters are rising. And what's we got on the agenda? Number one, world revolution. Number two, organise the demo at Wealdstone outside Kodak. Uh, number three, organise the Christmas Bazaar. Let's move swiftly to three, uh, the Christmas Bazaar, I think. So anyway, I, th I, I think that may have gone on, something yeah. like that. What about your friend at school? Did they have... I mean, was your life different from theirs? Did you know if your life was different from theirs? You, you describe what seems like a very distinctive mix of personalities, background, political activism. Is that, was that typical of the, the people you're surrounded by? At primary school, uh, I was aware in a variety of ways that there were sort of things that were very different. Um, one day, one boy came up to me and said, you are, aren't you? And I, I didn't quite know what he meant. He went, you're Jewish, aren't you? And I went, um, I'm not really sure. I don't know. And he said, well, my mum says you are. So I went home and said, am I Jewish? And my mum said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, you're Jewish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right, right, yeah. Well, as Peter, his name is David, I think his name, David Kellner. He says that I've got to go to Hebrew classes. His mum runs Hebrew classes, and he says, I've got to go. And she said, oh, yeah, that's nice. Think about that, you know, my parents, where they were coming from, oh, that's nice. So I started going to Hebrew classes, which took place in um, a Methodist chapel, <laughs> uh, because there weren't enough Jews to have a synagogue, you see. So Mrs. Kellner, uh, and I attended Hebrew classes. Uh, I can only remember two bits. If there's anyone who's good at Hebrew here, you can just pull me up on this. Uh, comrade there. Um, and uh, so, yes. Um, she said, Mrs. Kellner said, there's two letters, one that's kind of, kind of seven with a dot on the top and another one the seven with a dot in the middle. And she said, how do you tell the difference? And we sat there going, we don't know how you tell the difference. She said, I tell you, you think of, the ball, think of that little dot as a football. And when it lands on your head, you say, oh. And when it lands in your kishkas, in your belly, you say, ooh. Oh, ooh. <laughs> so anyway, that's the limit of my... <laughs> Hebrew there. I haven't got. But you got will all remember it now, though. Yeah. Every time you look at a piece, of, it's, it, and it yeah. is modernised Hebrew, so it won't help you with your Aramaic, because I know you'll all be desperate to read Jesus's words in Aramaic. But anyway, um, so yeah. Uh, but uh, I left Hebrew classes because uh, they shouted at me at Chessington Zoo. You've got to have good reasons, uh, I always think, for leaving, you know, things. And uh, we went to Chessington Zoo. They said you can all go off where you want. I wandered off on my own. I wandered around, saw the lions and the tigers, you know, all that sort of stuff that used to be interesting. When I came back, they said, where have you been? We've been looking for you for hours. 
Yeah, you've ruined everybody's afternoon now. And I said, well, you said you can wander off on your own. Is what you said. You said, I said, no, 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 you're supposed to be in your group. Everyone else was in their groups. You weren't, were you? And I said, I didn't know anything about groups. So I thought, well, blimey, it's no point going to Hebrew classes if they're going to shout at you about being in groups. But, my, but mum's dad, Zayde, he thought it was hysterical. I remember him coming over going, Michael's going to Cheder. I don't believe it. Cheder is um, Hebrew for uh, Hebrew classes. And, and he sat there weeping with laughter because I look at the think of it, I can see him laughing. And I think the reason why is because my parents would have, you know, created such a fuss such a fuss about you know leaving Judaism and here was their son age seven going I'm going to Hebrew classes you know so he must have thought they've got him they've got him Aha, you can't get away you see and it's only a matter of time yeah it? exactly but it, it didn't last until but then when I went to secondary school it was slightly different because there was because this the secondary school was near to Stanmore and Edgware so suddenly I was surrounded with kids who kind of knew they were Jewish and did things like bar mitzvahs I wasn't invited, which I thought, you know, they all had bar mitzvahs and I never went to any of them. They said, we've got, we, are you, you, you know, and it, it was, it was, but anyway, so the, the school, secondary school was a bit different. Yeah. Would could, you read a little yeah. bit for us? Yeah, for so us. Um, I, one of the guys I met at secondary school was a guy called Dave, Dave Stoller his name was, um, and uh, we got very, very friendly and uh, here I am turning up, um, I think on a Friday night, yes, that's right, yep, here we are. Dave, my best friend at the time, lived in Stanmore and used to ask me over for Friday nights, what my father called Shabbos Benacht, as if we observed the eve of the Jewish Sabbath. I'd never seen or done these Friday nights. At Dave's house there was Dave, his younger sister, his younger brother and his mum and dad. His mum was not a happy person and could turn every conversation into a comment about why she wasn't appreciated. His dad was a jazz musician who had given it up to sell shoes in Wembley Market. It's not all about you selling shoes, Morris, said Dave's mother. What do you think I do all day? When I arrived at the house, he said, lovely to see you, Michael. How's your auntie? I said, you don't know my auntie. That's why I asked, he said. <laughs> when we sat down, he said, <laughs> when we sat down, he said, if I didn't have a couple, I could put my hand over my head. God won't mind. Why'd you say that, Morris? It makes it sound like I haven't got any spare. Just open the drawer and give the boy one. I put on a couple. Morris said the prayer and poured the wine into a silver cup and drank it. Any of you men want some? For goodness sake, Morris. We were all communists once, Morris said, but I could see that it doesn't work. It's human nature. You don't know what you're talking about, Morris. Do you like jazz, Michael? I don't know, I said. Music's the most important thing in the world, he said. I could spend all day playing jazz. I know, said Dave's mum, and you would if it wasn't for me. What size are you, Morris said. Eight. Eight already? What are you, a monster? He went out the room and came back with a box. It was a pair of corduroy slippers. Do you wear slippers, he said. No, I said, then sell them. <laughs> I know a very good place in Wembley Market. It's run by a good man called Morris. Reminds me. A very old friend of mine was dying. He called out for his sons who'd come to his bedside. Harvey, here, Dad. Monty, here, Dad. Solly, here, Dad. And my friend said, so who's minding the shop? Dave's mum said, Dave's mum said, why'd you do that, Morris? Michael doesn't know whether that's true or not. It wasn't his friend, Michael. It was a joke. I thought, it's a joke? What's the joke? The bloke wants to know who's minding the shop. If you had a shop, you'd want to know that someone was minding it, wouldn't you? 
Do you know, Michael, the other day a fella came into the shop and he said, what is it with you, Morris? Why are you always asking questions? Is that a Jewish thing? And I said, why'd you ask? <laughs> Dave and his brother and sister groaned. Morris got out his guitar. It was a light brown, very shiny semi-acoustic. He plugged it in. Turn that down, Morris. I can't hear a thing. He whispered to me. Why does she need to hear a thing? What is this thing she needs to hear? All my life, she says, turn it down, Morris. I can't hear a thing. And I've never found out what the thing is she can't hear. He was, he was vamping along as he talked, soft jazz chords, and Dave started playing the piano. It all sounded so clever. I'd never sat in a room with musicians like them. Morris and Dave just played and played without ever looking at a piece of music. It flowed out of them. Then I went upstairs to Dave's room and he had a record player. He said, this is the most amazing record that's ever been made. He put it on. It was Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. The day after Charlie Parker died, he said, all over New York, people wrote up on the walls, Bird Lives. Morris came in and asked me why I wasn't having a b'mitzvah. I said it was because we didn't believe in God. Morris said, what's believing in God got to do with it? <laughs> Your father had a b'mitzvah. He didn't, I said. He didn't? What are you talking about? I was there. Were you? No, I was lying. <laughs> his mum didn't agree with b'mitzvahs, I said. He told me. So how did he get his first suit, said Morris. He says, his Ada made it. That's clever. You're not fools in your family, are you? He said, do you know what a Schmendrick is? No, it's a fool. Your father's no Schmendrick. Dave had to learn speeches for the B'mitzvah. It involved reading pages of Hebrew. The books lay open in his bedroom. Do you think there'll be socialism? Morris said. Yes, I said, you're wrong, he said. I see these people come into Wembley Market. They come in my shop and I think, how can there be socialism when the world's full of schmocks? That's awful, I said, pricks, that is. That's awful, I said, you can't think like that. I try not to, he said. Believe me, I do. I'm just saying what I think. We have to say what we think. Don't you agree, Michael? Why do you talk such rubbish, Dad? Dave said. Do you think I talk rubbish, Michael? I said, no. Then you're the first person in the world to think that. Let me shake your hand. <laughs> Dave's mum put her head round the door. Don't leave your teacup there, Morris. I spent hours tidying up the last mess you left. So there we are. That was Shabbos Benacht round at <laughs> Dave's house. Thank you. I, I wanted to pick up on, of all the things in that piece, I wanted to ask about jazz, but also about all of the culture that seeps into your childhood. It's amazing. I mean, this is, that's an unusual case because it's not something that came from the home. But the book is full of discovering writers, discovering poets, discovering musicians. A lot of that was directly from your parents, wasn't it? A lot of that yeah. was your parents, uh, not just directly, but also deliberately flooding you with these things. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose you have to say that my parents discovered culture, with a capital C, English culture, British culture, whatever it was, at a literary level, um, and um, we haven't touched on it, but they left the Communist Party in 57 and to a certain extent kind of filled the gap up with even more culture, possibly sort of turned communism into comprehensive, meaning comprehensive schools, but that's another matter. Um, but indeed, yes, I was schlepped to the theater from the day I was born. I can remember going to the old Vic, uh, watching Julius Caesar when I was about six, um, and uh, taken to galleries. Uh, I can sort of, you know, see all that. And there was a way in which my parents sort of thought and, and if you like, made it clear that anything was ours if we wanted it. We were taken to, if you like, left culture in the form of theatre workshop in the East, in East End, Joan Littlewood's theatre workshop, 
or you know, going to hear or, or listen to people like Ewan McCull uh, singing and so on. So there was an idea, there was a sort of communist left culture or near left culture. Um, I'm pretty sure I was taken to Unity Theatre on one occasion to see the pantomime, though I don't remember that very well. Uh, but I certainly remember going to the theatre workshop and seeing Treasure Island and uh, great ex uh, adaptations and also Alan Lomax's uh, Big Rock Candy Mountain, which I just thought was absolutely wonderful. Um, so there were all these things going on so that when school started to put this stuff in front of us, I felt very at home with it. It was sort of seamless, the idea that there was all this stuff coming from home, but also that I could access it at school. And so, you know, I kind of enrolled for school plays and all that sort of thing. And there was also a way in which my parents, you only had to express a kind of minor interest in something. And they'd go, theatre? You like theatre, do you? Well, I think we've got, yeah, there's the Questers Theatre in Ealing. And mum going, Ealing? You can't go to Ealing all on your own on a Tuesday night. Of course you can. All you've got to do is get the bus to Rainers Lane, get the tube from Rainers Lane to Ealing, catch the trolley bus from Ealing Common, and you're there. It'll only take about an hour and a half. And my mum's going... But this isn't just maybe you can see a play in Ealing. This is, you can now be an You're going to be an actor. Yeah. You know, you, you think, mm, the sandwich is quite nice. He's going to be a chef. He's going to be a chef. That's it. So it's an enormously Anything. ambitious just sort of Dive straight in and he can go and do that. Um, and indeed, as far as the acting was concerned, um, I was in a, a little play at school and the English teacher, who was uh, probably the first person in Pinner to wear suede shoes, um, a guy called Barry Brown, um, was in a, he was Bassanio in a play that you may have heard of called Merchant of Venice. And uh, he said, I think we've got a part for you, Mick. Um, I was very proud that he called me Mick. He said, uh, you could be the Prince of Morocco's slave boy. You may remember the Prince of Morocco, most people think it's just Shylock, but in fact there are one or two other people in Merchant of Venice. So he was Bassanio, uh, very interested in Portia, I should say, at the time, uh, and Nerissa at the same time, yes, both. Um, it's amazing he managed both, but anyway. Um, uh, the Prince of Morocco has a slave boy, and um, uh, I'm feeling slightly embarrassed even as I say this, I um, blacked up. Yes, I blacked up as the Prince of Morocco slave boy. So this is 1960. Um, awarenesses about such things had not reached Hatch End and Pinner and Harrow. So it was felt all right for this white Jewish boy to black up as the Prince of Morocco slave boy. And I used to have to come onto the stage with a frond <laughs> and stand there next to the Prince of Morocco while he said in some disgusting imitation accent, all that glisters is not gold. And I'm standing there like this. The only problem was is that I used to get a bit tired because I was, all I wore was a loincloth, right? Which is quite a lot of blacking up when you come to think of it. And so I used to get a little bit tired halfway through. So I must have taken one or two shortcuts one night because I'm standing there and the audience is giggling. And I don't know why they're giggling. I'm thinking maybe the frond is a bit off or something like that. And when I came off the stage, Barry Ground going, look at you, look at you. You haven't done your, you haven't done your belly. You look like an underdone sausage. So, my first major part in theatre was a, a, as a, an underdone sausage. Yeah, destined right. for a great career on the stage, as we've definitely. It's, I followed it up with many underdone sausages since. Yes, that's right. So much about so much of the way the, the, the stories are told in this book are to do with the kind of culture you you consume, the kind of culture you discovered. There's even a bit. You, there's a bit when you're talking about. Um, 
folk songs and traditional songs, and th there's something about night visiting songs, which you use to explain the time you snuck into your girlfriend's bedroom one night. Yes. And I, and I <laughs> apart from this, I put it to you that no one else would tell the story that way. No one oh, else right. would use no. that as a way of telling the story about yes. this otherwise ordinary thing. Well, so maybe some of you know in folk music, there is something called a night visiting song. I'm a rover, seldom sober, that sort of type song sung by people like Alex Campbell. There's traditional Scots and Irish songs about somebody who comes and knocks on his lady's door and, or whatever and climbs in. There may be a husband or there may not be. Um, my girlfriend wasn't married at the time, she was still at school. Um, and um, I just... Don't feature in the song. Yes, no, no, fathers tend not to, but I suggested to uh, the young lady in question who's now quite a famous lady, as it happens, but anyway, um, I suggested to her that, you know, you know that night visiting song that you sing, because she used to sing it, she was a folk singer, and she, I said, you know, maybe I could, you know, you know, like, come over, because her bedroom was on the ground floor, so you didn't have to climb up the drain pipe, it wasn't like Romeo and Juliet or anything, and I could just, it was hatch end, you know, things don't get more exciting than hatch end, uh, I could sort of bunk in through the window of her bedroom. So she said, yeah, it's a good idea, actually. So I did, but the only trouble was, I'd, we thought we were safe at sort of one o'clock in the morning, but her dad was still up, and I didn't realise that, and suddenly um, we heard these footsteps coming towards the bedroom, so I leapt out of bed and jumped in the cupboard. I mean, it really is, you know, those of you that know medieval comic stories, uh, this had all been written before, you know, before I even got there, so I jumped in the cupboard and stood there. Um, I'm not sure there were many garments on me at the time, but I remembered to take them with me in case there were any kind of rather large shoes sitting on the floor. So I stood in the cupboard, and then her dad came in and said, everything all right, love? Not worried about anything? Nope. <laughs> A-level's going all right? Yep. You okay? Yep. Okay, night night, love. Night night, Dad. And she went out, uh, he went out, and then I came out of the cupboard, and she said, I think you probably better go. And I said, yeah, yeah, no, I think so too. Anyway, night visiting songs after that had a certain sort of other meaning, but anyway, yeah, so we didn't try that again, but um, yeah. Anyway, in the end, as it happens, that bloke sort of saved my life, but that's another matter. Yes, that's right, that was, because um, he, he did also happen to be my dad's boss. Um, yeah, th that wasn't By well arranged, way, but anyway, yes. yeah, he was my dad's boss at the Institute of Education just over there. Uh, he was the head of English, and uh, my dad was in the same department, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, yes, uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of art and life, really, isn't it? It's, it's quite a, yes, I hadn't thought of that through fully before, yes. But you talked a moment ago, you said something about reaching school and kind of being comfortable with, with the culture you got from it because you had all this stuff at, at home. Can you say something about, about the experience of being at least at secondary school? And um, I, everyone here knows you have views about education now, uh, which we're not going to go into, though they are good views, but we don't have time for them. But something about how conducive the experience your experience of secondary school was for a kid who was very well cultured, who was political, who was activist, who was wanting to be engaged with things. How 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 welcoming? How well how welcome were those things in your school? So I passed the eleven plus uh, in spite of myself, and um, so I was at a school called Harrowweald County Grammar that isn't there anymore. And then we moved, and I went to Watford Grammar. They're both very different schools. Um, 
Yes, it's, it's quite hard for me to disentangle what, what it was all about because education in the post-war era, I sometimes think, was beset with certain kinds of anxieties. You've got to remember that people had lived through the 30s and the Second World War, and I can remember teachers very clearly talking and sounding as if they were creating this new world, that we were in a new era, and that somehow or other the hopes were uh, on our shoulders, and that it was going to be a new world. But and that, believe it or not, this may sound strange, but the 11 plus was part of that because in fact it did extend education. And that we were especially privileged because after all we were at grammar school. So we all had to be grateful all the time. So any, but the problem was, was that there were things that were unbelievably boring, unbelievably tedious and unbelievably conformist. And so there were, in all the people I've ever spoken to who went to grammar school at this time, there were kind of regular outbreaks and revolts and rebellions, and you never guess what, I was part of that. Um, <laughs> but there really were, and sometimes they were just sort of people walking out of lessons, sometimes they were kind of riots in lessons, and in my own school, the bloke who ran the chemistry lessons, I mean, they were riots, I mean, quite genuinely, people used to throw things about, throw lab equipment about, and the bloke would just clear everybody out, so, he, I mean, he didn't actually have a lesson to teach. And this is, you know, grammar school in the 50s. People don't realize this stuff. Other teachers, you know, like Barry Brown, the one with the suede shoes who taught me English, I mean, he had no trouble at all, because, I mean, it, he had suede shoes. So, you know, it was... No, but... Um, and there was, you know, a big commitment to learning and to understanding, but sometimes they were so stultified with trying to imitate public schools. I mean, it's quite interesting looking at this half-timbered work. They were always trying to sort of stick bits of timber on the wall to make it look somehow or other kind of Jacobean or, and then stick a few names up because you'd won a shield or won a hat or something, I don't know. So there was always names up there some bloke had had to paint in gold writing. And you were supposed to sort of feel terribly much in kind of awe of all this, but I was with a group of boys mostly who just had no awe whatsoever. Um, and spent their time, spent our time, devising ways to disrupt the system. I mean, so for example, i just give one example. Um, you know, like every so often, the evangelical Christians announce that there's going to be the end of the world, and you know, and the newspapers are a little bit facetious about it. Well, we took it seriously, sort of seriously, if you like. So it was at 12 o'clock, or 12.30 or something, on a given day, so we announced that it was the end of the world, and then we went out onto the main field next to the cricket pitch and held an end of the world ceremony. So we turned our jackets inside out and we got out a kind of portable altar and then we started praying and dancing and rolling our sleeves up and trousers up and, and, and dancing around. And of course, the school went mad. Um, it, it was like kind of, what is it? It's, it's red rag to a bull, really. There was about 400 kids suddenly descended on us and we were in this sort of ring while we'd sort of conducted this improvised ceremony, saying, it's coming any moment, brothers and sisters, the end of the world is nigh, it's coming now. And of course, the teachers, it was just like, the, rather than finding this funny, this was, you know, the end of the world as far as they were concerned. I mean, they just thought, this is a complete disaster. We've lost all control, uh, which is to a certain extent true. And, um, and so these things went on. Um, but you staggered through and passed your exams in one or another because they were telling us that this is what we had to do for the next layer of mm. culture, society, and whatever. But um, just, even at, when you were at university, even the, even your exams, even taking your finals, was done with a certain amount of 
rebellion and uh, yes. nerve. So um, I was at university uh, at the time of the student revolt. I was a revolting student. Um, the student rebellion was on, which at one level we took very seriously. Um, you know, there was a Vietnam war on, you'll remember. Um, and we were very active in organising that, but also what was coming not, up... Not in organising the Vietnam War. No, sorry, organising against the Vietnam War. You got a good point there, Daniel. I hadn't thought of that. Um, and <laughs> it's like an extraordinary admission to make. It, it was, We were yeah. very active in organising Yeah, that. just the Vietnam War. It was just like, you organised, so the, you know, the... the, the preposition... Now you can buy the book and find out how we did it. Exactly, and also we, what we did raise at that time was also the structure of education, so the whole issue of who could controls education came up at that time. This was raised by the Paris events, of course, and very much so. Who, who are these universities for? Who are they run for and by? And so there was a sort of double revolt going on on universities. And though I was at Oxford, which of course is a highly privileged institution, the, the, the questions at the time seemed just as important, namely, should we do Anglo-Saxon or not? Not quite of the same order as to whether the Americans should be bombing Vietnam, but at the time felt quite a big crunch question. So I can remember what was called a faculty meeting in which we were summoned by the head of the faculty, Dame Helen Gardner. Those of you that like your metaphysical poetry, John Donne and the like, will know the name Dame Helen Gardner. And she summoned us because she was very concerned that there were revolting students. And it was, uh, it was quite extraordinary because uh, the way they spoke to us was that they felt they not only had intellectual power, but that they had sort of physical, you know, what's called in, in church, temporal power over us. And we didn't have any respect in that sense, and this was absolutely frightening for them. And so I remember her giving a little speech about how they put so much effort into preparing lectures, and lectures at Oxford were voluntary, and, and she said, and sometimes we do lectures and nobody turns up. And I said, well, that's because they vote with their feet. And I, I didn't mean to be deliberately rude, but I was just sort of explaining to her that it's because people think it's tosh. And I was just sort of trying to explain that to her, and she just exploded. I mean, it was just extraordinary kind of outburst. And um, we explained to them that the language component of, the f of English that they were doing at university was sort of... It was like it finished at 1900. This was 1965, 66. They hadn't taken any notice of linguistics that had happened between 1900 and 65. Because we're Oxford, why should we? In actual fact, they didn't take any notice of literature since 1900 because the course ran from Beowulf, Anglo-Saxon, to 1900 because it was too soon <laughs> to talk about 20th century literature. This was explained to us by Dame Helen Gardner, you see. And it, it was like, what? What do you mean it's too soon? So, of course, so there was a, a revolt. In fact, I found out later that our objections to the language paper were so great that on the day of the language paper for finals, I remember vaguely out the corner of my eye that the whole faculty was there. The whole of, you know, I mean, Oxford is creeping with academics. There's like kind of 100 per student, you know. And uh, the place was packed full of academics. And it's because they thought we were going to do a run on it or something, or that we were going to... They always imagined that somehow I walked around with a gun. I'm not quite sure, but he was always described as this sort of dangerous person, Michael Rosen. And they thought that in some way or another we were kind of going to upturn the desks and set fire to the papers or something like that in the glorious 18th century building in Oxford known as schools. Schools would, would be destroyed. But in actual fact, we just all quite sat there patiently writing this shit about, you know, 
how fat got into that and became this, became this and that and that, you know, all that sort of stuff. Anglo-Saxon, Middle English. Anyway, so that's what they thought. Um, in fact, in the very, very last exam in the last minute, there was no revolt whatsoever, apart from the fact that prior to the last exam, I had, in actual fact, painted on this... We had to wear a gown. Oxford had to wear a gown. And I'd painted on the back, Jeff Chaucer. <laughs> Jeff spelt J-E-F-F, I think that's right. Jeff Chaucer. So I turned it round the other way in the last second of the exam, walked up right the way up through the aisle <laughs> to get the paper, and then turned round where there's another 500 students the other way and walked back. That was the sort of limit of my revolt, I think. Though I had actually, I, the other thing you're supposed to do is wear a uniform. The uniform you're supposed to wear is a black suit, black polished shoes, uh, a white tie, would you believe, um, a white bow tie and a white shirt. Well, I didn't have any of that stuff, so I wore a je black jeans jacket, some black jeans trousers that I had, and I didn't have any black shoes because for f at least 10 years all I had was plimsolls. So I blacked up a pair of white plimsolls and then I, I wore a bandage around my neck. <laughs> and then I didn't, some, a lot of the kind of slightly more flashy ones used to wear a carnation. I had a little disc on which I'd written a carnation. <laughs> so anyway, Dame Helen Gardner, fresh from the um, disaster in the faculty meeting, I could see her out the corner of my eyes. I'm writing about Jared Manley Hopkins. I, I called this morning, mornings, minion. Can I could see out the corner of my eye. She's getting nearer and nearer, <laughs> kingdom of daylights, dauphin dapple, don't you? And then she's standing next to me and she's going <laughs> like this. And then she handed me a card. I promise you, I'm not joking. And on it, it wrote, gentlemen wear subfusk. Subfuck, as we used to call it, but anyway, Latin for this gear that you're supposed to be wearing. Gentlemen wear subfusk, and then it said uh, black shoes, black suit, and the whole thing. And she, she handed it to me, and on the bottom it had the threat, and if you don't, then you know, you'll be excluded from the exam. And I thought, well, that's what the world expert in metaphysical poetry does in her time. So when she's not thinking about, you know, mark but this flea, you know, John Donne, busy old fool, unruly, gentleman wears subfusk. <laughs> anyway, nothing like a sense of proportion. And um, so, yes, that's right. So there, there were clashes around that, uh, around that time, 1968, yes. It's coming up for the anniversary. Join us for celebrations. <laughs> You, you were talking earlier about, uh, I think it was when you were talking about shopping in John Lewis, you said something about the family being bourgeoisified or something. And there is this couple who had this background and they've got to the point where it's a sort of upwardly mobile thing and their son is now at Oxford. How comfortable were your parents? How comfortable was Harold with, with, being, this, with being comfortable, as it were, with being in that part of society? I think my parents believed that education was objectively good. Mm. So it's sort of that no matter what, well, in fact, he was changing his views on that, even as I think that, but the, the, the core of it in the 50s and 60s was the idea that the more education you got, the better it is. Ideally, you would have, but you went to medical school. Ideally, you would have stayed in medical school. That was the hope. Failing that. Yes, that's right. I once expressed that. a mild interest in biology, <laughs> and my parents went, <laughs> he's a doctor. Biology? <laughs> you could be a doctor. And you've got to remember that there were three kinds of doctors. There are doctors, there are Jewish doctors, and there are Jewish communist doctors. <laughs> so doctors are better than teachers. They were teachers. Teachers, what do you do? You just teach, 
right? So they, they didn't have huge pride in teaching at that stage later, yeah? Then above that is doctor because it's international knowledge, yeah? You see, you can do doc doctoring anywhere in the world. You don't even need to necessarily speak the language. You just doctor, right? Okay. And then there are these other ones, Jewish doctors, who've sort of escaped from the sort of tribe and become universally accepted. You've escaped from anti-Semitism. You've escaped from it, so that's great. And then there are the really special ones, yeah? The real Gunzermachers are the, are the Jewish communist doctors because they've applied their medicine, applied their Jewish sensibility, applied their Marxism to being a doctor. And we even had a friend who was a Jewish communist doctor, Chick. <laughs> that was his name, his nickname. He must have had a Polish name that ended in Chick and they couldn't bother with the rest of it. So, um, so Chick. So uh, yeah, I was taken to see Chick and they said he likes biology. He could be a doctor. <laughs> and so, yeah, I believe it or not, I ended up at medical school and um, I even did a year at Oxford uh, doing, yeah, doing a first, first uh, year in a degree in physiology. That's anatomy, yeah, you know, humans, that stuff. Yeah, I did that. Um, and physiology, biochemistry, and all that sort of stuff until I was able to get out of it. But yeah, but that's because they did think that there's this sort of objectively valid stuff called education. I mean, I don't not think that, but that's, they definitely, mm. that's what they believed in. So there's the class element of it, you're in this place, um, but you're getting this good stuff which you'll be able to apply at some later stage in the interests of humanity. It may not be communism anymore. Well, they would have described themselves as socialists. I mean, when I got arrested at Grosvenor Square, I didn't get out the police station till four in the morning. Who was there? My dad and my brother waiting for me. There they were. I came out and they said, we knew. I said, how did you know I was in here? He said, well, we, we watched the news and we guessed you were in Savile Row. I said, I didn't even know I was in Savile Row. How did you know I was here? <laughs> We have, I just want to ask you one last thing, Michael, before we open to questions for the audience, which is about, um, about the very end of this book. One of the things that we haven't really talked about very much, but you mentioned these bits of family that were kind of somewhere, we, somewhere else we don't talk about them. And one of the things that keeps coming back in this book is the sense of there being stories that aren't being talked about. There's a lovely thing about, I think, is it your grandmother's black trunk, which is this thing that's kind of full of photos and kind of stories somehow. But the book begins with a story that... Uh, isn't being talked about, which is a, a, a brother you had older than you who died uh, as a child. Um, but the, the very end of the book is, is an extraordinary discovery which happened actually after you'd finished, you'd finished writing the book. Can you say something about, about this, this last sort of revelation you had? So like um, many, possibly all Jewish families in this country have got their origins in Eastern Europe, is that one of the consequences of the Holocaust is that there were people, so if you're somebody like me born in 46, but if like my parents born in 1919, that there would be cousins or uncles or aunties that you may or may not have known about or you knew a bit about and that they were there at the beginning of the war and they weren't there at the end. And that as kind of Europe woke up to this thing that had happened, this Holocaust, three million Polish Jews killed, um, and Jews all across Eastern Europe and Russia and so on. And of course, as I say, many of the Jews in this country had relatives and didn't know what had happened to them, where, which camp, why, were they shot, were they, what, it was just a mystery. And so in my family, 
um, my father's uncles and aunts were distributed across America, France, and Poland. So the Americans obviously survived. Um, but France and Poland, it was just a mystery. My dad couldn't even really list them all, all the relatives, because his grandparents had had something like seven or eight kids. So he didn't know, and I would regularly ask, and of course every time something came up at school about France during the war or something, right the way through A-levels or university, reading people like Jean-Paul Sartre at seeing the sixth form, I'd come back to this, I'd niggle away at it. Well, what happened? I don't know, I don't know. Why would we know? Why would we know? All I can remember their names. It's how they were called Oscar and Martin. And then where, where did they live anyway? I don't know, he'd say, Nancy, Metz, Strasbourg. And you go, well, which, which one? I don't know. And he'd be quite irritated about it, you see. And then I'd ask my mum be similar questions. And of course, as I've got older and sort of starting about 15 years ago, I thought, well, I'm going to really try to find out. But how do you? Rosen is actually quite a common German name and also Jewish name, uh, as adopted by Jews. So there's a lot of Rosens out there. And when, if you just go to Holocaust records, there's hundreds of Rosens who died in the, in the Holocaust. And I would find at least 20 Oscar Rosens and Martin Rosen. And of course, you can spell Rosen with a Z, so and indeed with an A as well, because it's kind of Polish, you decide how to spell it. So I didn't really get anywhere at all, and I tried all sorts of things. But then bit by bit, I began to piece the story together. Uh, the, the big breakthrough was the fact that my um, second cousin in America, who I'm very friendly with, scurrying around in his family records, suddenly three or four letters turned up which had been sent by the relatives out of France and Poland in 1940 and 41. So suddenly I had an address in France, because it was the French ones I was following up first, I had an address in France, in southwest France, in Niort, the places, southwest France, and suddenly I had an address, I even put it up on Google so I could sit here looking at 11 Rue Malaise. And this is a place and it's still there and it's exactly the same, you know, it's a 19th century building. And I'm looking at this place and I'm realizing that this is where Oscar Rosen is. And I thought, but how can I find out more? And you Google and you Google and then I had it, found an incredible book called uh, Le Chemin de la Honte, uh, the, the, the route or the road of shame in De Sèvres. Uh, in this part of France, and I remember getting it on a day that we were moving house. So actually, while all these boxes and bags are going, it's a very sense of sort of transition and uh, transitory moment. And I pulled the book and pulled it open and looked in the back, and believe me, I've looked in the backs of books quite often to see whether the name Rosen is there for egotistical reasons, but now this was for another reason, and I could see Rosen, another name, not Oscar, but Yeshi, and then a whole set of numbers, and then I flicked to the first one, and it had 11 Rue Melez, 11 Melez Road. And here is Yeshi Rosen, living with a Rachel Rosen, uh, in this house. And so from that point onwards, I've pieced together what happened to them, and it's an awful story of what Vichy France did with what they called foreign-born Jews, which is, of course, they demanded they wear the yellow star, demand that they put entreprise juive, on their stalls or whatever it was. They took every single piece of money, property, anything at all, bar the clothes they were standing in, off every one of these foreign-born Jews. These were put into big warehouses. Um, and they were handing over the lists of these Jews to the Nazis. So every time you see the word rafle, that means a roundup in French. Uh, so every time you see the word rafle in, in French, those are roundups of mostly foreign-born Jews, 76,000. And 
I then discovered mysteriously in this book that in actual fact, Oscar and Rachel, Yeshi and Rachel still at this stage, had escaped. So they'd escaped, and yet this Yeshi Rosen figure turns up on the records, on the Auschwitz records. So how did he escape and where was he found? And I went on and on Googling, and then there was a guy in the Ardennes in Sedan, right up near the Belgian border, and suddenly he was telling me, and now Oscar, the name comes up, and Rachel on a Jewish cemetery, and it suddenly appears, and in fact you can see it online, he's on, uh, those two are on a monument in the Jewish cemetery in Sedan, and I said to him, well, do you have any idea how they got there? And he said, yes, they were picked up from the Hotel Excelsior in Nice. What? Nice? What has Nice got to do with it? Somehow or other, this pair made their way across France, you can look at it, it's at least 400 miles, from Niort to Nice. Why Nice? Because the Italians were occupying Nice, and the Italians were refusing to hand over the Jews to the Nazis. For whatever reasons, the Italians protected the Jews under their auspices in France. They didn't always protect them in Italy, but they did at this moment in time in Italy. And at the same time, there was a guy issuing false passports who had requisitioned some boats. Remember, Monty had won in Alamein. We're now into 1943. Monty had won in Alamein, so North Africa's being, quotes, liberated. And so he's shipping Jews out of Nice, across the Mediterranean, to be free in North Africa. And he's doing that. But at the same time, the Allies are fighting the Italians and are on the verge of victory. And Donati, this banker, he gets on the phone to Eisenhower and says, whatever you do, don't announce the armistice. Because if you do, we're finished. Eisenhower, the, the, Allies, defeated, the Allies defeated Italy on the Saturday he announced it immediately and straight away, within two days, Eichmann's right-hand man, Alois Brunner, invaded Nice, invaded that part of France. The remaining Jews who hadn't got on board the boats were sitting there, sitting ducks in the hotels. There were a few up in the villages up above Nice. I don't know whether you know it, but it's on the edge of the Provence mountains. They escaped into Italy, where some of them were picked up later. But the ones in Nice were all, all picked up something like 10,000, I don't know the exact number. They were picked up, shipped to Paris, and then shipped to Auschwitz. And I found out most of that as I was writing the book, but the bit that I found out very late on, two things, was that my father's cousin in America, Olga, and I found it online, had in actual fact applied to get Oscar Yeshi Rosen and his wife out of France, in 1939, I found the form that was, you know, you know, a lot of people outside of Germany and Poland and so on were trying to get Jews out as much as they could. They knew they were in danger. They didn't know about the Holocaust, but knew they were in danger and were trying to get people out. And Olga had tried to do it. The only mystery about it is when I interviewed, as it were, Olga, when I spat and spoke to her at great length one day, she said, oh, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about them. So she had never revealed to me that mm. she had actually tried to get them out. And then, incredibly, as I proofread the book, a cache of photos. So what happened was that my second cousin, his father died aged 103. That's old Ted. This is June, Ted Jr. So after Ted had died, Ted Sr. died, he went into the house and there was a sealed up closet 
and he broke that open and inside the closet was a box sealed up of photos and on it it said family photos. So he broke it open, so this is last year, right? He broke it open and in it were the photographs of Yeshi and his wife Rachel and brothers and sisters including we have one survivor in the family who's uh, my father's cousin from Poland and including a picture of him with his mother and he had never seen this picture so this is uh, a guy called Michael who lives in Stanmore and so we sent him the picture just as the book's going to, into production and so he looks at a picture of himself and his mother in Bielska Biala in, in Poland, Bielitz in German and he looks at it and he's never seen this picture of him walking down a street in Bielitz with his mother in 1938 and it was sitting all this time in a closet in Manchester, <coughs> Connecticut um, and Ted Senior and Olga had never told me about this no matter how many times I went over there and said to them, did you got no idea of whatever happened to it? No, no, we don't know, no, 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 we don't know anything about it. We don't know. So a kind of very sort of strange mystery yeah. of sort of disappearances and, um, and then sort of survivals in a way through photographs and me uncovering these, the, this, this story of how some of them perished and mm. just one, uh, Michael survived. There's a moment in the book where I think it's a teacher of yours saying goodbye to you as a, as a kind of parting shot, so something like, uh, don't get rubbed out, which is a great thing to say about, about leaving a mark, and it's a great thing to say to someone who's going to be a writer because it's a way of leaving a mark. But it strikes me that a lot of this book is about that. It's about not just for yourself, but also leaving a trace of these people who disappeared and your parents and your brother. I wonder, just as a final question, whether one of the reasons for one of the things that drives you to write a book like this is partly about making sure these people leave some kind of mark. I think some of it's involuntary that because of these, this whole sort of area of these disappeared relatives that disappeared in a more benign way, my parents not sort of knowing or staying in contact with all these relatives, all the people in America that I didn't know until I was a late teenager and then went over and found them as it mm. were. This is my father's father's side of the family. Um, and then, as you say, the, the boy who died, who remained a mystery and should never be spoken of, and I think the only conversation I ever really had about it after I found out was when my own son died uh, with my dad, but never ever spoke to about it with my mum. Mm. And that as I was pursuing this stuff about these relatives, and indeed trying to find out more about my father's father in the States, I did occasionally say, why am I doing this? And the answer I always found for myself is, certainly as far as those people in Poland and France was of course, well, what was the, what was the, na the Nazi aim? The Nazi aim was not only genocide, but also that there should be no record. Mm. That that's, that's the key part of genocide, is that you don't want anybody to know about it. You don't walk around, maybe some genocides you do, going, look what we did. Instead, there's a kind of disappearing. I mean, it's, it's, it's written in Mein Kampf, it's not a mystery. I mean, he, he wanted to, extirpate Jews from the European tradition. There was a very clear idea that the Jews were a menace to European society and civilization. And so Hitler expressed that, care of Alfred Rosenberg, that you've got to take them out. Mm. So whether it was sending away or exterminating, either or both, that would be ideal. So in a way, I found myself thinking, well, just in this one case, <laughs> in no, you're not, because I found <laughs> out what happened.
<laughs> I found out. Thank you very much. Uh, we have time for a few questions. Um, there is a mic at the back, so if you put your hand up and we'll send the microphone to you. Uh, here in the th uh, third row, yes. Just, just, hang on just a second, the mic to come to you. Thanks. Hi. Um, describing um, your education and how the teachers were quite um, like condescending in university, I, um, I felt that kind of reminded me of secondary education. And You thought, sorry. Um, sorry, your description of a teacher in um, university being quite patronizing. I felt, I was wondering if you think the attitudes of teachers has changed or since then or, or if it's the same? Um, to a certain extent, I can only speak for me and my colleagues. I teach in a university, uh, Goldsmiths, and uh, we... And you model yourself after Dame Helen Gardner. Dame Helen Gardner. Gardner. I things. come in and say, I am Dame <laughs> Helen Gardner. Um, <coughs> I, I can't think of a better group of people in, in educational terms than the group of people that I'm lucky enough to work with in the Children's Literature Department at Goldsmiths. Um, we try to give our students hours and hours of attention. We take everything they say desperately seriously. We factor in discussions in pairs, in groups, in the plenary. Um, they have feedback. They have elect somebody to tell us why we're shit. Um, and uh, we do our very best never, ever, ever to be condescending or indeed to dismiss anything um, and would rather scratch our heads and go, I don't know why, rather than say it's wrong. Um, and we cover their essays with hundreds of comments. Um, they get two half-hour tutorials per, um, per essay. They get three or four hours per dissertation. So. I can't speak for other campuses and whether other people feel frustrated by what goes on in universities. I personally have had various frustrations on, in universities when I've basically been booted out. I mean, that's a bit frustrating, but, um, <laughs> but in terms of the, the team that I work with at, at Goldsmiths, uh, I'm amazed, I really am. I mean, by the, by the way, my head of department deals with uh, students' pastoral problems and so on, you know, oh, hello, I'm pregnant, can I, is it, can I miss a year? Sure, don't worry, have a few babies, come back. You know, I mean, it's incredible. Um, yeah, no, no, I'm full of admiration, so I think things have changed a bit. I can't speak for Oxford, I um, I'm, I've haven't been there for a bit. Thank you, uh, another question. Thank you. Uh, yes, gentlemen, the second row. Oh, don't let him ask, oh, no, not him, yeah. How are you doing, mate? Very well, thank you. Good. What ambitions do you have left? What ambitions do I have left? Yeah. What ambitions? What ambitions have you got now? Yeah. Ambitions forward. he wants. Yeah. <laughs> ambitions. Second volume of a memoir. Yeah, well, that's where, where, yeah, well, you'll have to ask him over there. See there, him over there. He's in charge of the second volume. Uh, ambitions. No, I really don't. I, I, absolutely, I'll, I'll answer you dead straight. No, I mean. I write, I like to go on writing. I sometimes think, well, wouldn't it be great to write a this or a that? And that becomes a sort of ambition. Uh, I gave myself the challenge of writing about Emil Zola and his time in this country, and it was a huge mountain, and it was wonderful, because I, I did it, and it was a wonderful thing to explore what Zola was going on about, why he wrote J'accuse, um, what he did in his spare time. I translated his letters and his daughters memoir about him and that was wonderful I was I felt exciting because I was using my education 
I was being a knacker, as my dad would call it, a clever dick, and I, I sort of, I got a real pleasure in it, and I, I sort of, I, 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 I know, just psychologically, I was partly doing it for my dad. I was saying, look, see, you know all that stuff that we did and we talked about? Look at me, I'm doing it. Uh, he was gone by the time uh, the book was finished. Um, so I would like to maybe, you know, write something again a bit like that. I got interested in various things, so I don't know. Um, as far as radio is and telly is concerned, I mean, I don't know, telly is its own world. People like me are too old and ugly, so um, they, they're not interested. But um, radio, I'm, I'm fascinated by radio. It's a, it's a kind of beautiful medium. You know, you can catch it on the hop, you can do it, the rest of it. And so um, I like things like In Our Time and uh, Jim Al-Khalili and programs like that, and I like to be in that tradition. But it's not exactly an ambition. It's more like just sort of carrying on, really. In fact, that could be the movie, Carry On Rosen. <laughs> Without the without the rude jokes, or maybe with the rude jokes. Yeah, I don't keep, with the, jokes. keep the rude the jokes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you said in passing um, when you were talking about the Zola book that there was part of you just thinking, you know, your dad would like the idea that you're using these things. How has your this is quite helpful to phrase this question? But how has your relationship with him changed in since since he since he passed away? Because he's uh, what we didn't mention, I think, is that the the very last the, the kind of postscript to the book is written as a letter to him. Um, it doesn't go away, does he, really? Uh, he was such a presence in my life, and the fact that my mum died when I was only 30, so the hundreds and hundreds of questions that I couldn't ask my mum, and then it was also quite difficult to ask my dad about my mum, because um, uh, his wife was in the room at the same time. Uh, he married again, so are you here, Betty? It's all right. Um, but anyway, Betty would admit to that. It's just it was... The triangle didn't quite work. You couldn't say, so now let's talk about Connie. Um, it's not quite appropriate, is it? And, um, and so, but with the old man, uh, he, he lived till he was 89. Uh, so he lived till 2008. So we got through a lot of stuff. I mean, virtually on his deathbed, he was still waving books at me to read. Now you'd like, <coughs> you'd like this one, Mick. It's um, Terry Eagleton's, fuck, shit. Uh, <coughs> it's Terry Eagleton's memoir. You'd, you'd like, oh, I got, that's oh, my ass. <coughs> so anyway, um, so uh, in a sense, that it doesn't go away, does it? I, my brother has a very, very different view of my dad. So. Um, he, he brought us up very differently, put it that way. Um, and so the, the one way in which the, the, my relationship with my dad evolves is through conversations with my brother, because he has to have time to say why um, the old man annoys him and uh, makes him very irritated. He's 75, um, and I have to sit there. Well, I don't have to sit there, but I sort of, I'm not irritated by these things. But then he did act as my lightning conductor, you see, because when my dad used to tell him off, he then used to come into the bedroom and then imitate my dad telling him off. So by the time my dad came to tell me off, it was just funny. <laughs> so, do you see, it was, it, 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 my dad would go, absolutely sickening, you see? And my brother would come into the bedroom and go, absolutely sickening. And then about a week later, my dad would say to me, absolutely sickening, and I'd go, Pfft. What's, what's, what's so funny? What's so funny? And we go, <laughs> it's what you. So it kind of he diffused everything. But the poor bugger, he's, he's walking around with absolutely sickening in his head. He was like, you know, the first. It's, it's like a sort of military thing. It's sort of the first receiver. Yes. Yes. Wait, the last question. There was one more question just here. 
I hope this isn't a bit cheeky. We've got our children here and they all listen to your poetry at school. Do they? They do. And um, we were wondering if it's possible you could do a poem, either chocolate cake or breathe, which is my favourite. We sit down to eat and the potato's a bit hot. So I only put a little bit on my fork and I blow. <sighs> Till it's cool. Just cool. Into the mouth. <sighs> nice. And there's my brother, he's doing the same. Till it's cool, just cool, into the mouth. Nice. And there's my mum, she's doing the same. Yeah, we did come from that sort of a home, and here we go. Till it's cool, just cool, into the mouth. Nice. But my dad... My dad, what does he do? He stuffs a great big chunk of potato into his mouth and that really does it. His eyes pop out, he blows, he puffs, he yells, he bobs his head up and down. He even spits bits of potato onto the plate and he turns to us and he says, watch out everybody, the potato's really hot. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Rose. Michael is going to be signing copies of the book. I am. Aren't you? Yes, I should have checked no, with you. Yes. Uh, at the back there, you can buy copies of the back. I urge you very strongly to. Do you have a, do you have a, a burning question? That's right. A very good. Okay, we'll have one last quick question for the lady in the front. I was just, I was just oh, about to mention. Hello, Benny. How are you doing? Yeah, are we allowed to ask why they called you Pisha? Right. He's not okay, actually calling yeah. me Pisha. So the title is. Thank you. Okay, so what it is, is if. I didn't dare do something. So let's say I, I don't want to go in for the swimming gala. And my dad would say, so they call you Pisha. So what that means is what's the worst that could happen to you? The worst that could happen to you is that they call you Pisha. What's a Pisha? That's Yiddish literally for a pisser, but it's a nobody, a nisht, a nothing, a nudnik. So a nobody is a Pisha. So what's the worst that can happen to you? They call you Pisha. So it's a protective thing that my dad would say. So they call you Pisha. What, what, what else could happen? It couldn't be bad. Yeah, I don't want to go for that interview for Oxford. So they call you Pisha. I remember him saying it to my mum once because she was quite nervous about going for interviews and things. And he would, I remember him saying to her, so, so what's the matter, Connie? They call you Pisha. What's the problem? So there we are. That's what it means. You'll find it in Leo Roston, I think. I had no idea, but it, they seem to, other Jews seem to say it. <laughs> it's not just not just. It's not just us lot. Yeah. It's incredible. Get the book. It's fantastic. There's so much in it. You will love it. Get it at the back. Michael and, will sign and it. And thank you, please, for Daniel. For, and for thank you, Michael. One more thing. Thank you.